Hey, this is Mike. Welcome back to Intergalactic, the podcast reviewing the most essential sci-fi TV and film of all time. I'm here with Clyde. What is up, Clyde? Hey, Mike. I'm excited to be here. You know I love sci-fi and I love talking, so this is a perfect place for me. Yes, and this week we are talking Stargate again. Indeed. This time we'll be covering Children of the Gods, the premiere episode of Stargate SG-1. As you may or may not know, listener, we're covering the most essential episodes of Stargate SG-1 on the pod right now. It's a series we call Essential Stargate. See how that works? So in our last episode, we covered the 1994 Stargate movie, which was a blast. So check that out if you haven't already. should be up on the feed. And if you're listening and you want to know which episodes of SG-1 we plan to cover, because we're not doing all of them, we're just doing like some essential ones, there's a link in the episode description for a full list of the episodes we plan to cover. So check that out. All right, Clyde, let's just get to it, man. Are you ready to talk about some slimy, disgusting snake aliens that live inside people's bellies? I mean, yes, we finally get to talk about MacGyver, so I am all ready and excited to do this, man. Let's do it. Snake aliens, MacGyver, it's SG-1, children of the gods. Let's do it. All right, so this premiered on Showtime on July 27, 1997. Clyde, I've never seen the original Showtime uh, version of this of this pilot. It's a two-hour pilot, kind of a two-hour TV movie that launched SG-1 back in 97. Uh, about three years after the Stargate movie came out, whole new creative team, whole new cast of actors, except for one. I think the guy who plays Scara is the same guy. Um, but yeah, this premiered. Showtime, 97. Showtime, was it Showtime or Cinemax? Because uh, It was Showtime. It was definitely Showtime. And the reason I, I wonder is because I know there is uh, maybe one scene that was a little NC-17 back in the day, which does not show up on our watch. Uh, we watch the syndicated version or the syndicated edit that's on Amazon Prime. So if you have Prime, that's they. Uh, I think from what I understand, they essentially show you all the episodes that were edited for syndication on TV. So that's what we saw. So we didn't see any any nudity uh, in this episode, but I can't believe there was ever nudity in Stargate. It shocked me when I read this. I mean, just out the gate, that's one of the big differences from the, the Showtime version and the version we watched. Look, Mike, I saw the original version. It was wild. It was crazy. There was nudity. No, I'm kidding. It was uh, really it was this one scene. And I I actually had the box set, the original box set of the first season. Mm. So I've seen the first couple seasons that were on Showtime before uh, they moved to, to sci-fi. It's this one scene in the entire Showtime run. So it's not like there's this trend. You take out that one scene, you're getting the same thing. Like you're pretty much getting the same okay. thing. So, it's, so you didn't miss much, right? You didn't miss much. Well, good. And, and, you turn me on to another topic that I find more interesting than than nudity for some reason. You said box set. Did you have the the DVD box set or okay, DV, not the VHS? No, at the DVD box set. So I again, I didn't watch Stargate in its original first run. Like like I mentioned, I came to it late. Um, but in two thousand and two, I got the box set, 
And it's kind of how I got hooked. So I had the, the box set of the first season. And the next thing I know, back when Netflix was sending out DVDs, I realized that one of the best things about Netflix was TV series. Mm-hmm. You can get like six, seven, sometimes 10 episodes on a DVD. So if you're just trying to send your DVDs, DVDs back one at a time, a TV show was excellent. So my very first TV series was Stargate. And I started binging it like a crazy person. Though binging it is slightly different when you got to get one CD at a time or one DVD at a time. From one uh, middle-aged sci-fi fan to another, I raise my glass to you, sir. I did the same thing with many series. They say time is the fire in which we burn. So this this episode was directed by Mario Azopardi, written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright. Brad Wright, man, he he is the architect of all Stargate TV. He pretty much went on to um, showrun or have like a major presence in all of the Stargate shows. And he he was a great um, steward of this franchise. Um, MGM and Amazon have been talking about bringing the show back or bringing, you know, rebooting the franchise somehow as a TV show. I just hope they they make some room for Brad Wright because I think he really steered this ship pretty well. And it doesn't surprise me that he was here as a writer right out the gate. So the music, we get a whole new score here by Joel Goldsmith and a new cast. We have uh, Richard Dean Anderson as Colonel Jack O'Neill taking over for Kurt Russell. Michael Shanks as Dr. Daniel Jackson taking over for uh, James Spader. Doing a really good James Spader impression in this episode. Amanda Tapping, new character, Captain, Captain Doctor, Dr. Captain, Samantha Carter. Uh, the awesome Christopher Judge, who I think just steals this episode as Teal'c. Uh, the late Don S. Davis as General Hammond. Uh, Jay Asavone as Kowalski. And Peter Williams as Apophis, who uh, I think might be the only cast member who kind of feels like he's in another show. It kind of feels like he's in like... That, that syndicated Hercules show or like Cleopatra 2525 or something. He's pretty broad yeah. in this episode, Apophis. He is. Yeah. So this episode is essentially a sequel to Roland Emmerich's 1994 Stargate movie, minus Roland Emmerich and most of the actors from that movie. But that's cool because we pretty much like everybody who took over for everybody here on this show, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm always, or at least in the beginning, I was very skeptical when you would go from a movie to a a TV series. Because in a movie, especially if it was a good movie, you got really attached to the cast. And you had to get over the, like, that's not this character. But when I watch this, I I mean, I hate to say it because, like I said, I'm a... I'm a big Kurt Russell fan, but I, I walked away going, man, they should have had these guys do the movie. Like I like the cast from almost from the, the from the moment that they showed up on screen. Um, I was like, I like this cast better. Like it fits better. The tone, and we'll get into that, but the tone changed just slightly enough that I was like, man, I I knew very early on I was gonna like this show. And I think that a lot has to do with the the cast that they got to play these characters. Yeah, I like him too. We'll we'll dive into the cast a little more as we go through the entire episode and we'll sprinkle in some like background information, some some half-ass research I did. But 
Um, you've already started telling me your opinion on this episode, Clyde. Tell me the rest. How do you feel about Children of the Gods? What? How many years later is it? Came out in 97. Can you do some quick math? I mean, quick math. It was like oof, close to 30 years ago, give or take. 26. Yeah. yeah. Almost. Oh, yeah. 26 years ago. Yeah. Um, I like this episode quite a bit. It, I, I thought as a premiere episode, it did a great job, especially of, as a premiere episode that was taking its lead from source material. It's, it's phenomenal in going, hey, you've seen some of the history. Let us reset you, and then we're going to launch off from there. And so overall, what you, what you think about is you've got to bring us from, from what we know. And it really felt almost like a standalone to going, hey, surprise, the world is bigger than you thought. And then doing what great TV series do, especially when you have an ensemble cast, you've introduced us to each of the, the key characters, and then you've, you've launched us off. And particularly, like again, when you think about 1997, this was a time where shows like this were primarily episodic. Mm-hmm. It, it's episodic. So you're looking at the show that you're, you were going to have basically, to borrow a term from Star Trek, an away mission of the week, right, is really what you were looking at. And they set that up really, really well for us to kind of understand this is where we're going. You've got this premise, and we'll get into that. And so ultimately, like, when I look at it, I love this show. Now, we're not going to cover all of the episodes, because with any TV series, the first season, they're trying to fill themselves a little bit and figure out who they are. But this episode, I really did enjoy. And we should say, between the two of us, you're the SG-1 fan. Not that I'm not a fan. I just haven't seen the whole thing. I've seen a few episodes here and there. Do you remember which, what Stargate show I love, Clyde? You are a big fan of Atlantis. I have to admit, I'm a huge fan, too. But yes, you're an Atlantis, you're an Atlantis fan, which is a great, great show. I think I've seen Atlantis, the full series, more times than I've seen SG-1. Okay, cool, cool. Is that because you like it more? I don't think I've uh, asked you this. Which one do you like more? Ah, uh, it's hard for me not to say I don't. Which like is your favorite? SG one. I would have if you asked me the question, I would say SG one. But I think by the time they got to Atlantis, they the they got the formula right. Like they really knew what they were doing. So from from right out of the gate. So right out of the gate, SG one has some episodes that you're like, okay. Uh, it's it's kind of like if you go back and watch that first series of Star Trek: The Next Generation. There's some episodes in there that you're like, "What were you guys doing?" And so, while I think SG1 gets to the point where I'm like, "Man, I really love what you're doing. You really set it up." Atlantis gets to take that and run with it, and I think from beginning to end, Atlantis is just solid. I like. There's some moments because of the the big bad and the adversary that I'm a little like, whoa, this is might be a little too dark for me. Um, but by and large, every single episode of Atlantis kind of hits. I won't say every single, but they, they just had the pattern worked out. What you'll see in the first season of Stargate SG-1 is they're still like, they've got a great premise, but they're honing it. They're, they're getting it to the point. By the time you get to some of the later seasons of Stargate SG-1, you're like, man, this is great sci-fi. Um, so yeah, like I said, I do love this, 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 uh, franchise quite a bit. I'm actually excited about watching 
you know, all these SG-1 episodes to see the trajectory of the show, to see how it evolves, not just from a production standpoint, but from a storytelling standpoint, from a ambition standpoint. I know it jumped networks after the second season and went to, it went to sci-fi. And then like almost every other season, the show didn't know if it was going to be canceled. So it like the season finale would kind of be a series finale, but then it would come back. And then the last two seasons are like a completely different show. So all that sounds cool to me. All that sounds exciting. I think what you get with SG-1 is you get everything that you said. Um, the character de- development is pretty significant. And, and what I mean by that is, like, in Children of the God, we are meeting Jack O'Neill as he is basically unretiring, right? We're meeting Daniel Jackson as he is being enlisted, right? We're going to talk about Tilt joining and Captain Dr. Carter. Like we're meeting all these people at the very beginning of their journey, right? Like literally like they're brand new to all of this. And over the course of seven seasons or so, you start to really pick up like, wow, we're, you know, the trajectory just gets to be amazing. And then, yeah, the last couple seasons, you're dealing with some new, I'm not going to spoil it for you because we'll get there, but you're introducing all kind of new characters, new story arcs, new villains. You have some crossovers. Like there's a lot that goes on with any show that runs for a very long time. And again, we're, this is, this is back in 97 where when you say, Hey, we've got a season, you're not talking about 13 episodes. Time about like 22 <laughs> like get in there it's a mm-hmm. lot of episodes mm-hmm. so so there's there's a lot of growth that happens um and yeah they're like i absolutely had a moment where i'm like am i sticking around hmm. and you know i'll say it when they introduce uh my um what is it a uh, morena backer like I was like, oh, this is an interesting character. Mm-hmm. So a little, little sneak peek for you down in later seasons. They get into some other From areas. Firefly. Uh, yes. Um, and then they, like the thing that's interesting about Stargate SG-1 is the crossovers, right? Like it, it feels like it's sci-fi for sci-fi heads. And what I mean by that is if you like other sci-fi series, I joke around with our Trekkie friends, like keep watching Star Trek and find out how many Star Trek, or keep watching SG-1 and see how many uh, Star Trek cameos they are. There's a ton, right? And then for those of you deep cut here, if you were into Farscape, right, you'll see some Farscape characters pop in. So like you said, you mentioned Firefly. Like there's so much, like this series becomes like kind of a, a home away from home for sci-fi actors from all over the galaxy. So it's cool. That's cool. I wonder if there's any um, Babylon 5 actors in this. Cause Maybe. I've been watching Babylon 5 lately, and I'm totally enraptured. It is so good. I have to go back and give it another try. I tried it a, a couple years ago, and I was like, I couldn't quite get through the first season. So It's so good. Well, let's let's get back to Children of the Gods. I like this premiere. I liked it a lot. It, it definitely, like, I watched it right after... I watched the 1994 Stargate movie, so it definitely lacks the epic, like, majestic scale of that movie, right? But I think this this premiere kind of, in a smart way, doubles down on a couple things that really make, make it a success that the movie didn't. Like, the first movie, the characters are all kind of surface. You don't really get to know them too well, but this episode 
gives all these main characters a real, like real tangible emotional stakes in everything that's going on. This makes all the crazy shit that's happening feel like it really matters because the heroes are all, they're all like deeply emotionally invested in the mission. Like Daniel Jackson has to rescue his wife. Like that's a huge motivation for him, right? O'Neill has to rescue his surrogate son, right? Skara. Um, Teal'c finally resolves to escape from this horrible situation he's in with these evil masters and, and fight against them, something he's always been wanting to do. And it's pretty clear when, especially when Samantha Carter goes through the gate, that there's nothing more important to her than learning everything she can about the Stargate and how to use it. And so all that gives the story a lot of depth and it makes it seem like these actors and these characters really have a stake in everything that's going on, which was was kind of lacking in the original movie. Like the characters are pretty thinly drawn in the movie. Now, the second thing I think this pilot does really well is it focuses on the team aspect. We didn't get that a lot in the movie either. There was a lot of bickering, but here you get the story of a great team coming together. You get the banter between the characters. You get to see their relationship start. And it ends, this episode ends in a nice satisfying way there's this iconic shot of the four of them who will become sg1 in front of the gate that is it's just like oh well that's my team i really want these guys to be together i want to follow them on the missions it's very satisfying that stuff is great in terms of not so great look i'm not gonna knock it too much man it's 90s sci-fi right and it's showtime this was like one of their first Mm -hmm. um big goes at a at an actual tv series yep. for showtime instead of just like showing movies so you know it kind of had a lot going against it but i'm not gonna knock it too much but there is some corny shit here for sure i mean but that's just par for the course right that's just par for the course. yeah there there's some there's some moments where it's like really like we're just gonna go with that okay um, but I also realize that I'm I'm viewing it through a 2023 lens now, so I want to be mm-hmm. careful because sci-fi as a genre has really picked up. Like it's gotten much more nuanced. So I don't want to bash it too much, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm with you. Not perfect. Yeah, I'm I'm not here to bash, but some of the dialogue is a little cringy. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Not a lot of it. Um, I guess the last not so positive thing I'll say about this episode it it looks dusty as hell man like the the movie looked amazing but this thing definitely had a smaller production budget the effects are a lot cheaper but I don't know it feels like a design choice like the missile silo stargate command set looks dusty and gray and depressing kind of a a far cry from the like you we were talking about Atlantis like mm-hmm. that gate room looks beautiful right um but yeah this this the set, the main set that they have, just looks kind of ugly. Like, and the the cobra heads that the, the bad guys wear mm-hmm. look pretty silly. Like, we've gone from the movie from the uh, the CGI Sphinx heads mm-hmm. to uh, yeah. to these to these mechanical heads that kind of clunk, and uh, the actors have to poke their head out of the out of the opening so they can see what's going on. It's it's kind of silly. It's weird, but despite all that, this is still a very solid premiere. It does a great job of transitioning the franchise from 
from a movie to a weekly series. Um, and it sets you up for a whole bunch of adventures, 10 years of adventures. Mm-hmm. So as we know, let's try to break this thing down and talk about it a little bit. So this takes place a year after the movie, right? So we're in an underground U.S. Air Force military base. Uh, five airmen sit around a table playing poker in front of the covered Stargate, which stands dormant. So we don't see the Stargate. It's like a tarp over it, right? So one of the airmen expresses her concerns that an officer is going to come down and catch them like playing poker. And the other soldiers is like, nobody ever comes down here. The Stargate doesn't work. Who cares? And all of a sudden, hey, it turns on. And then these warriors in the metal armor with the serpent heads appear. These are the Jaffa. And they come out of the gate. They grab the female airman, um, Teal'c. This first time we see Teal'c, Christopher Judge. And first time we see Apophis because his eyes glow. So we know he's the leader. If you were watching this right after you saw the movie, you would think what a lot of the characters in the mo- in, in the show think. Oh, this is Raw. Raw somehow survived. But it's a different character. It's Apophis. Um, what do you think about this opening? And already we're kind of getting into changing the mythology a little bit with the gold. So what do you think about all that? I thought the dialogue and setting up what was happening in the gate room was ridiculous. Um, I did. <laughs> like, I mean, I, look, they're playing poker. That's fine. But if you know anything about the Stargate and 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 like anything at all, if it starts to move, you will freak the hell out, okay? Like, you know that this is bad news, okay? And so the fact that she was looking at it and getting close to it, I'm like, are we in a horror movie? Like, do, are you really going toward the sound of, like, in the woods? Like, what are you doing? And so I, I definitely felt like there should have been a little bit more caution. So all of that was a little bit kind of, campy and corny to me and i was like okay like i'm gonna i'm gonna suspend belief for a little bit because i'm understanding that that's a vehicle right that you're using this as a vehicle but come on yeah. uh, but when he when they stepped through i i really was like okay wow and it's one of those things again, if you're watching it with kind of a critical eye you can see the way they hone in on christopher judge that you're like okay this is somebody i need to pay attention to and so ultimately I was like, okay, now we're like, you're, you're, you're trying to start off with a bang. So I appreciate that. Like it's, it's not, you know, the movie starts off with lots of conversation about archeology span and this one came in and with the first two minutes, you got the big bad showing up. Right. I was like, okay, attention got. That's true. Yeah. This one kind of dives right into the action right away. Um, and this one is a lot more military based. I feel than the movie in the movie, you get more of the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark type excavation at the beginning. Then you get a lot of time with Daniel Jackson doing his educational thing. Here, it's just like all military all the time. It feels like, which is fine. And yeah, this isn't this isn't Raw who came through the gate. It's a it's a new bad guy, Apophis, the uh, the god of night, and Raw was the sun god. So it's kind of his antithesis, but it's pretty much the same character. Okay, so. Next, we have Jack O'Neill, the return of Jack O'Neill, this time played by MacGyver himself, Richard Dean Anderson. He's up on his house uh, checking out the uh, the stars through his telescope, which I thought was a nice way to introduce his character or reintroduce us to this character again. It was a far cry from meeting Kurt Russell's version. Yeah. 
where he's sitting down in his dead son's room holding a gun to his face like catatonic. So it's nice to see Jack O'Neill has worked out some of his issues here. So he's brought to Cheyenne Mountain, where the Stargate is, where he's questioned, along with his former teammates, Kowalski and Ferretti, who are also in the movie, played by two different dudes. Um, they're questioned about the first mission to the Stargate, to Abydos, the desert planet. So O'Neill is unwilling to give any information that was already in their mission reports. General Hammond believes the only response to the gold coming through the Stargate at the beginning of the episode is to send a nuclear bomb through the Stargate to eliminate the threat. O'Neill finally tells him he lied about using the bomb to destroy Abydos and that even though the alien Ra was killed, the people of Abydos are still alive and Daniel Jackson is living among them. So this was a surprise to me. I never thought that at the end of the Stargate movie that Colonel O'Neill would go back and just lie about everything mm-hmm. and say, yeah, we we blew up that planet. Everything Everything's gone. There's no threat. Why wouldn't he just tell the truth? doesn't make sense to me. I think he thought that the military would look at this and make military-esque decisions, right? Like, if you think about it, there is someone who ultimately knows how to get to Earth, who they've left on a planet. And this is a gateway to another planet. And if you want those people to live in peace, the military doesn't have a great track record of going, oh, well, Colonel O'Neill, you said Jackson could stay there, but we're okay with that. You know, they would have likely wanted to bring him back. That's true. They do do want to bomb everything every time, don't they? Or exploit resources or colonize or a whole bunch of things. And so the right. idea of letting someone like Daniel Jackson stay because he fell in love and like is happy there, I I doubt that. So I I, I get I get what it happened. Again, it's it, it is a it's a bit of a departure from who we thought he was in the movie. So it's a little bit different. What do you think about Richard Dean Anderson in this role in this episode? I know like you have. 10 other years of him in this role to really like flesh it out. But, but here just as this two hours of Stargate, how do you feel about him taking on this role? I thought he did a great job of saying very loudly, but not angrily. I'm not Kurt Russell. Right. Like he did a great job of going, forget what you knew about me. I'm doing different. And so he's, it's much more witty it's softer like it's it, he's not a pushover but it's a little bit softer it's a little bit funnier like his whole conversation with carter right about her joining the team it took us mm-hmm. down to like oh are you another chauvinistic military leader and he was like no it's not that it's more like i don't like scientists which you go okay <laughs> i yeah. i can accept that <laughs> I like Richard Dean Anderson. I, as a kid, I loved MacGyver. MacGyver was a shit. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be MacGyver. Not, not just the fact that he could like, you know, dissolve a bomb with a piece of chewing gum or whatever, but he was just cool. Like MacGyver was always in these horrible life or death situations, but he was always pretty chill about it. And I never felt MacGyver was like really sarcastic or flippant or 
kind of hostile right <laughs> the way that um the way that o'neill is here and it's gonna take me a little bit to warm up to him like i like richard richard dean anderson so like i'm letting i'm letting that do some work but the way he's playing o'neill in this premiere it kind of felt like he was kind of doing a peter vaitman from ghostbusters but without like the charm you know it he yeah. just felt sarcastic and flippant at everything so kind of turn me off a little bit yeah he's he's definitely a little edgier here um and that balances out at, at some point but yeah i can hear I, I hear what you're saying yeah it's it is a big departure from laid back chill never agitated macgyver yeah and he also kind of felt like he didn't want to be there I, that's the vibe I get. I don't know. Maybe that changes. No, it's what it, I think. What it is, Mike, is it's not so much that he 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 doesn't want to be there, but there's a sense of like, why are you bothering me? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like no one knows but us who've actually been there, and you're over here trying to make these decisions. Like, don't do that. Just trust me. It's it's kind of like. He's going, just stop. Let me do what I do. You do what you do, but let me do what I do and stop asking me all these questions. Right? That's and, fair. Yeah, that's that's, fair. I, that's what I think comes across is just kind of like, ugh, will you trust me already? So O'Neill convinces uh, General Hammond, who I like, Don Davis, um, to let him communicate with Daniel Jackson. So he sends a box of Kleenex through the, through the gate which is then returned with a send more written by Jackson. Cause we know that if you watch the movie, Daniel Jackson has allergies, mm-hmm. kind of a weird way to communicate with him, but it's funny. Um, so Hammond reinstates O'Neill to active duty, orders him to return to Abydos to investigate where these alien invaders came from. So a team is assembled. O'Neill's commanding the team, bringing along Kowalski, uh, Ferretti, not played by, French Stewart. French Stewart this time. And uh, Captain Dr. Samantha Carter. New character, Amanda Tapping. Uh, when they step to the Stargate to find a group of Abedonians waiting for them, armed with uh, military weapons from Earth. So around this time is when Samantha Carter walks into the meeting and we're introduced to her. I know Samantha Carter from what I've seen of her in Atlantis and in... She's in a few episodes of Stargate Universe. I always like the character. Mm-hmm. I think she's really strong here at the gate. I like her enthusiasm. I don't think there's a lot that separates her yet from Daniel Jackson. Like she reminds me a lot of the Daniel Jackson character we met in the movie. Like she's very analytical, but also very enthusiastic about this this whole project and the science of it all. And she's really willing to explore. But from what I know, she does become a really strong character. Uh, her introduction here is a little iffy, especially when you could tell it's just a, a room of, of men writing for a woman when she says that line about her reproductive organs being on the inside, not on the outside. That's uh, a little dated. Maybe they cut that out of the... like They, they recut this whole pilot mm-hmm. back in like 2007. So maybe they cut that out. I don't know. It's kind of goofy. But what do you think about her her introduction here you know like you said it's interesting because i've got 10 years of her plus right when you think about atlantis and and universe and things like that not to mention some uh, some of the other work that she's done 
going back and seeing this first introduction, I'm like, oh man. All right. Well, she gets better. Um, it's it, and and what I mean by that is you're right. You're you're spot on right. Like when they introduce the characters, it feels like a redundant Doctor Jackson, right? Yeah. And Mike, you've podcasted with me long enough that you know I love a good team up. And I'll say this something I haven't said before, but one of the greatest team ups of all time, I believe, is the A team, right? And yeah, with, this is the A team. This is the A team. But the thing about the A team is you have four characters in the A team, and there's no overlap. Right. There's not really any one person who can do another person's job. And I think that keeps the roles and what we look for and need very, very clear. And right now we don't quite have that clarity, but I happen to have seen the future and know it's coming. And I think that allows us to really get emotionally invested into the Carter character because you see their role um, and kind of their lane. Right. Right now, it's like, well, why are you competing with Dr. Jackson? I know Dr. Jackson. I love Dr. Jackson. Like, who are you again? Like, right? And we start to clearly see their their different positions, right? And and to give you a, a preview, what it comes down to is Jackson is an archaeologist. She, like, so he's kind of like old science. She's new science, right? She's a scientist, physicist engineer like she's the future he's the past and they do work together and kind of understand each other and that becomes kind of the lane that they're in um, and so this is an introduction i was like i'm glad she's here i think that if this is going to be a science show and not a military show you can't have a military leader who hates scientists and you know you beat up on the scientists you got to have the science case like yeah it is effectively, you need a data and a Geordie. You can't have a bunch of wharfs running yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a good instinct to bring in a military character who is also a scientist. So you can see that the military does embrace that side of this this whole journey. That works well. I think also what differentiates her from Jackson is, to the viewer, she's a new character and she's stepping to the Stargate for the first time. So if you're just starting this franchise with this premiere, she's kind of your audience surrogate, right? Even though she's studied the Stargate for years, she's never gone through it. She's never been on a mission. She's never experienced what it is to use a Stargate. And if you're a new viewer, neither have you. So you're kind of going along the journey with her. All these other characters have been through it and they've done the thing, right? So... That makes sense that you would want like a audience point of view character. Um, but I do like that she's a smart audience point of view character and not just like wide eyed goof off the street. Like, what is this? You know, so that's good. That was a good instinct. Yeah, I agree. So when they get to the gate, they're reunited with Jackson, um, with Scara, played by Alexis Cruz, the probably the only returning cast member from the movie who's in this premiere. And Shari, Shari. You know, it's not my fault that I don't know how to pronounce this woman's name. Shara, Shara. They changed. Shara, yeah. It's pronounced differently in the movie than it is in the show. So whatever. Um, she's now married to Jackson. So O'Neill, Kowalski, and Carter are led by Jackson to a large cavernous room filled with what he believes to be coordinates of a vast network of stargates across the entire galaxy. And this is where we realize... Oh, this is what the series is going to be about. 
Jackson explains that, you know what? The Stargate can go to countless other worlds. It's not just Abydos and Earth. And you know what we can do if we have a device that can go to countless other worlds that have never been explored? We can have a TV show where every week we go to a brand new world. They're all going to look like the Canadian wilderness, but that's okay. You know, Mike, it's it's one of those things where I think I know enough about military science to know that because they're the military, they have some of the coolest science. They know some of the coolest stuff. So I was struggling when I rewatched this to 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 ask myself, really? These super geniuses in the military, no one said, hey, we know that it goes to Abydos. You think this Stargate may go somewhere else? Like, no one really, like, stopped to think that. And I know Carter will say, oh, we, we tried all this stuff. But it's like when they find out, they're shocked. They're like, really? Like, come on. You had to at some point thought, hmm, if it goes here, can it go anywhere else? It'd be funny if the show was just them going back and forth to Abydos and Earth. Like, okay, we're we're back in this dusty silo. Let's... I'm tired of this. Let's go get some sun. Right. <laughs> Let's right. go to Abydos. Just back and forth. I hear what you're saying. But I think um, in that scene where Jackson purports his theory that the Stargate can go anywhere, and uh, I think they do a good job. Like, it's sci-fi, like, gook or whatever. But the fact that they talk about, oh, we thought of that, but it didn't. the coordinates didn't line up. But then they talk about planetary drift mm-hmm. and things like that. Like, that actually made – it made sense to me. Like, it did. I don't know if this is real. Yeah, but that's actually a pretty good explanation of why they they didn't think this gate went anywhere else. So I like that. And I, it feels like a really, to the characters at least, especially to the eyes of Samantha Carter, it feels like this really cool discovery that just leaves the door wide open for a bunch of possibilities, which is really cool. That also makes him realize that Apophis didn't, necessarily come from the Abydos gate. Yeah, he came from another gate. So let's get back into the episode. While O'Neill and the others are away, Apophis comes back to the Abydos Stargate kidnapping Skara and Sheree, Sheree, whatever her name is, and severely injuring Ferretti, as well as killing several civilians. Okay, let's let's kind of back up. We've gotten a couple scenes here with Michael Shanks as Jackson. I think he's doing a solid job of not, I guess a lot of people say he imitates James Spader in this first season a lot. I can see that. But I feel like the Jackson here, he comes across like he has more footing. He has more confidence because everything that he has theorized is right. And I like this character and it makes me feel like we're going to get a lot more character growth with uh, Daniel Jackson in this series. What'd you think about Shanks here? From pretty much from the get go, I like Shanks, right? Like Spader's character, I struggle with, um, hmm. you know, because when I look at Schrader, when I think about Schrader, all I can think about is from the movie where he's talking to these people about the food and he's like, tastes like chicken, you know, chicken, bok, 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 bok. like that drove me nuts. Bok, bok, bok. And so, Shanks comes in with a little bit more reverence, a little bit, a little bit more seriousness. Mm-hmm. And immediately he comes in with this passion 
where he talks to Jack O'Neill, where they it's it's almost like they have an understanding. He's like, Jack, I, I'm going with you. Like I have like he he talks in a way that has a little bit more authority. Whereas the Daniel Jackson Spader character just seemed like he was kind of like a little bit all over the place and didn't really know. And it's like, so I really appreciate what I see in Shanks. And it, it just felt like what was going to happen was I clicked with him almost immediately. And I kind of knew, man, this dude is going to be great. Like, I'm going to dig this character. He's good. He's pretty solid. He, he's For me, he's probably one of my favorite like sci-fi scientists. Like he he's he's up there, right? I know you like Atlantis, so we could talk about Rodney, who I frequently just want to yeah. throw things at the television. Um, no, he's the best. He's the best. But I'm I'm a dangerous Rodney answer. is the best. All right, all right. So uh, the crew returns to Earth. They tell everybody the Stargate can go to other worlds. The president decides to put together nine exploratory military teams to go to the Stargate. First one, of course, is called SG-1, led by O'Neill with Carter, second in command. Jackson, who is determined to find his wife, who was kidnapped by the uh, by Apophis, uh, demands to accompany them. Kowalski is given command of SG-2, and Ferretti, even though he's unconscious, he wakes up and he's able to recall the coordinates entered by the enemy troops onto Stargate, and the two teams head to the Stargate once more to track down Apophis and to uh, rescue Skara and Sheree. I'm just going to call her Sheree. Meanwhile, Sheree, <laughs> that's not her name, is selected as a host to a gold. The queen, Apophis's queen, and I think her name is Amone. Um... What do you think about the changes to the gold here? Because in the movie, the gold, in a flashback scene, they were represented as like the Roswell gray aliens, like the little short gray alien types. Here, there are these really disgusting snakes that live inside people's bellies and they're slimy and gross. Yeah. we're, we're It's looking, a huge change. It, it is, but I felt like it was needed, right? Because mm-hmm. what we're... What Stargate is trying to do is establish that, at least right now, they're saying the Egyptian mythology that we've come to know and love is in part part of this. It's a story of this alien experience, right? This that was pretending to be gods. And so for that, having this parasitic alien that can be in human form that takes on a human host right and then has powers kind of fits in with that and so i kind of felt like yes the gold and the larva in their stomach and all that's very weird um but the idea that you have this 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 full gold that you know as we as we will learn you know, embeds itself and wraps it around your spine and becomes this thing. Uh, look, I'm not a snake guy, but this works for me. You're not a snake guy, man. Nope. Come on, not you're not a snake bit. bro. Nope. Uh-uh. You're not a co- you're not a cobro. Nope, not yeah. a cobro. Nope, not even a little. <laughs> nope. Hashtag no cobro. Um, I think it's it's gross and it's shocking when you first see it, and it's rendered really disgustingly. 
all that being said, I think it works for all the reasons you said. And it, it works because it gives it injects like a horror element into the show. Too. Wait. And, and it makes these things really like like you don't want to be near them like they're they actually become a threat. Wait a second, Mike. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. OK, OK. So, again, I'm not trying to jump too far ahead. But Gould versus the Wraith, mm-hmm. which one's more gross and disgusting to you? Oh, the, the gold really for I sure mean, the, the wraith is crazy looking like that is creepy like that's actually scary a gold is not scary it's disgusting but not scary i guess yeah i don't know i find disgusting scary like if, if something's gross and slimy and it looks like a snake i just want nothing to do with it especially if it somehow can magically transport into my brain and my spinal column if it just touches my neck like it does to Ferretti at the end of this episode. Not Ferretti, the other guy. Kowalski. Like, that's just... Kowalski, yeah. I think the idea of just being... um, I think the idea of just being possessed is scary. Just your personality and your soul wiped away and replaced by this disgusting, slimy thing. That, to me, is it's a horror show. The, the Wraith... Being these like green Rastafarian killers is fun to me. I don't know. I think it's cool. We can have fun talking about this. We are. Because yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting that y- you were exposed to one creepy bad guy. And so the second one you've seen immediately more gross. I was exposed to a different creepy bad guy. So the second one seemed more gross to me. So it's fascinating. Okay. I'm I'm really happy that the gold like take human form because if it was just these snakes like <laughs> doing stuff, I, wouldn't watch. I would not watch this show i'm out i would not nobody would watch this show yeah yeah it's gross i think that i think the gold themselves understand that they're like we're too gross we need to be inside some very attractive humans and and put on a human suit because i can't even look in the mirror today this is bad so that makes sense to me um but this this uh queen is really picky apparently like She's been through so many like women and doesn't want any of them. None of them match up to be her host. And apparently if like if you're a woman and you're brought to be a potential host of the queen and she rejects you, then you die. Like they just immediately kill you, which is horrible. Like they can so just send bad. you back to where you're home and be like, Thank you for playing, get a little party yeah. gift. Like a little, little yeah, exactly. gift bag or something. <laughs> yeah, a little gift bag. Sorry, uh, it didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, we don't need you anymore. Go. <laughs> Didn't work out. All right. What happens after this? Um, So SG-1 comes through the Stargate. They encounter a group of monks who escort them to the town of Chulak, where they encounter Apophis and now a possessed Sharae before being captured. Man, Apophis is just crazy. Like, the guy who plays him is just going for the rafters. Like, he is... He's on a Saturday morning cartoon, this guy. He does not seem threatening at all. It's weird because, like, the conception of the character is pretty much the same as Ra. You know, he's, like, he's masquerading as this Egyptian god with all these powers, and he has this big crew behind him, and he's scary. Same thing as Ra. But Ra, played by Jay Davidson, had this really menacing kind of grace to him. This guy is just, he's like Jim Carrey in the mask with the, the, the things that he's doing. I didn't, I didn't really like him. Yeah, it was, it definitely felt like it was more of his tech that was scary than it was hate him that was scary. 
yeah, he didn't feel like a threat. He was just like his his expressions were so cartoony. It just felt silly. So our group gets imprisoned by Apophis's crew. In prison, O'Neill, Carter, and Jackson find Skara and are confronted by the enemy soldier Teal'c, who has noticed their technology. He notices like that O'Neill has a Casio watch. He's like, "Holy shit, what's that?" <laughs> Which is hilarious. Um, Skara is selected to become a host of the children of Apophis and his wife. That's where you get the name of Children of the Gods. Uh-huh. And Teal'c is ordered to execute all the remaining prisoners, including SG-1. But O'Neill sees that Teal'c is... He sees a conflict in his eyes. And he tells Teal'c that he can help save everyone there. I like that Teal'c looks at him and goes... You, you get kind of a hesitation at first. And he says, many have said this before, but you're the first that I believe can do it. And so Teal'c turns on his fellow soldiers. He helps them escape, becomes a good guy. And from the beginning, you kind of see this hesitation in Teal'c every time Apophis is doing these horrible things. I think they could have hit it. They could have done a little more to flesh out the idea that Teal'c was uncomfortable with all this terribleness that's going around, that's going on around him. And they could have done a little more to make me believe that he'd turn against his masters here. Did you buy it? I thought it was too easy. Um, mm-hmm. It just it seemed a little too easy. And I think I think there's some things we spent time on that we could have spent time on kind of, to your point, fleshing out Tilk's struggle with the treatment, right? Like, I, I, and knowing what was going to happen, I'm looking for it. And I felt like I couldn't really find it. Like, when you think about going back to that first scene when Tilk walks through the gate and he's, he has to pick somebody like he doesn't, he, I don't see any struggle there. Right. When, when he walks in and he has to choose someone like I, I, I'm looking for, I'm looking, I was looking for something that shows like, I don't know that this is the right thing to do, but I don't have any other options. Right. So, so I kind of went with it, but I was like, man, I just, I needed one more scene, couple looks in a scene, but it, it was, it seemed like, like I said, it seemed a little too easy. It did. Yeah. They could have underlined it a little more. And I do know, I did read a little bit that there's an episode later on that goes back to this time and fleshes out what's going on with Teal'c during this episode. Like there's some scenes of, of him, like, like, that episode in the future really sells his conflict and apparently sells his his decision to leave Apophis and to help SG-1. But they don't do any of that here. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh man, we didn't really do it in the pilot. We should definitely get around to, to selling this a little better. But that only makes me look forward to that episode when we get to it. I'm not sure if it's in this season. Maybe it's in another season. We'll see. So... O'Neill, Carter, Jackson, and Teal'c lead all the prisoners towards the Stargate, but they get pinned down by some ghoul death gliders. O'Neill and Teal'c are able to damage one before being rescued by SG-2, who destroys the other. The liberated prisoners reach the Stargate. They are once again met by a possessed Skara, who departs to the Stargate, not before knocking out O'Neill. Daniel rushes to open the Stargate back to Earth, and the team defends against an entire battalion of attacking Jaffa. 
We haven't talked much about the Jaffa. That's what um, that's what Teal'c is. I was a little confused because I know that the Gold use humans as host in order to live out the rest of their lives, but the Jaffa also have the Gold symbiote or whatever inside of them, but they are not taken over or possessed by it, right? No. So what it is is the Gold. So the Jaffa are basically incubators. Right. Mm -hmm. So their job is to basically cook, bake this baby gold. Right. Because it's a, yeah, I know it's disgusting. But because it's baby, it's a baby, it doesn't have the power to overtake them. Right. And if it tried to attach to a human at a very young stage, it wouldn't have the power to sustain. So they're chosen to, incubate these baby gold and in return they get perfect health strength long life right so naturally they are great choices for the guard right and that way they're close they serve and then when it comes when that gold matures it then chooses a host okay so it, it doesn't it it doesn't possess a jaffa once it becomes an adult nope they choose a host like Share. I found it odd that Teal'c has one of these in him and just keeps it, you know? <laughs> well, if, I, if I'm you, sure we deal with that later. Yeah. If you take it out, he dies. Like instantly? Uh, pretty quickly. Okay. Not like okay. instantly. Like, sense, he can go without having a Gua'uld for a time period, but not very long. It's like days. Gotcha. Okay, so there's a lot of pew-pew, shoot them up. Uh, everybody rushes to the Stargate. They get through it. As they retreat to the Stargate to Earth, Kowalski is invaded by one of these disgusting infant gold snake monsters, uh, unknown to the others, so he's infected. Uh, finally, safely home on Earth, Jackson and O'Neill reaffirm their determination to find Sharae and Skara and rescue them. O'Neill asks General Hammond to make Teal'c a member of SG-1, General's a little iffy on that idea, but, you know, it'll probably happen. As everyone leaves the gate room, Kowalski's eyes glow like a gold. He's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. So this was solid, man. I really, I did enjoy this despite, you know, some of the dated stuff. And I think the one thing they could have really improved on, uh, and I think we both touched on this and feel the same way, they could have laid more groundwork for Teal'c's decision to turn yeah. against Apophis. I think that that could have been a really good emotional core. Like everyone else got a pretty good emotional story in this movie. Like you felt the emotional stakes. But for Teal'c, it could have been deeper. And I think the only reason it did work for me to, to see that Teal'c did turn against his masters was because Christopher Judge is awesome. Yes. He doesn't do a lot in this episode, but his eyes and his facial reactions, his posture, this guy does some great physical acting. He's really good. Like you can see the empathy coming out of his eyes the entire time. So that really worked for me. And I thought he stole the show. Like he didn't do a lot, but he did do a lot. You know, he's a good, subtle actor. I feel like they had an opportunity for us to really be emotionally attached to him. 
And and so when they go back, it's like, he's got to be a part of the team. The audience is like, yes, he has to be a part of the team. What what we're ended up with is from a practical standpoint of, are you sure? Like, this is mm-hmm. <laughs> like, are you are you sure? Now, I want it to work because to your point, like you look at him and go, we got three members on the team. That's a trio. We need a quartet. This is the guy. I want him on the team. That team works for me. I lo- that's a show I'm going to watch, right? You've got the military leader, Hannibal. You've got the tech scientist and the old scientist. And now you've got somebody who's got, who, who basically speaks the language, understands the people, is strong. Um, that's the team. That's what you want. And so I, I was like, I'll take it but I'm going to acknowledge I'm doing this because I want to, not because you convinced me that this is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I know the show has to do this and I'm, I'm down for it, but yeah, they didn't really sell it to her at the end. I'm like, yeah, they're going to put him on the team. I was more like, you just brought him to the gate. Maybe let him take a shower, get a meal, maybe have a few conversations with him before you invite him onto your secret elite military team. (laughs) Like, right. Yeah, yeah. How do you like? Yeah, they, like, you you do realize that you got to send him out there to shoot his friends. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you mm-hmm. absolutely positive. Yeah. I mean, just a couple psyche valves first. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. O'Neill's just like, yeah, you're on a team. Let's go watch some football. Yeah. I I I really hope I warm up to this version of O'Neill. He just seems so flippant. He just seems like a jock who doesn't want to be there. I get all your points that you said earlier. And I'm I'm trying to let that influence how I feel about him, but but I'm in for the ride. Right now, I I really like Teal'c. I'm digging this version of Daniel Jackson. I like some Sam Carter and uh, O'Neill. I'm sure I'll get there with him. I'm sure I'll get. There. Yeah, it's a good show. I can't wait to talk more Stargate with you, Mike. All right, uh, Clyde. Where can people find you online if you want them to find you? Yeah, if you if you want to reach out to me, I'm on. X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, at Clyde Haynes. Um, you can reach me on my socials. Um, yeah. Or you, if you want to listen to me talk about other things, if you're interested in other sci-fi, uh, Thursdays, we do a live uh, Star Trek Discovery Pod. So you can also reach me at, at Star Trek Discovery Pod or at Star Trek Discovery Pod on socials. Yep. My name is Mike. You can find me on threads and on Instagram at Mike Moody Garcia. Find a podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Uh, subscribe, leave us a review, follow the pod on Insta and threads at Intergalactic Pod. Visit intergalacticpod.co for links to all that shit. And thank you for listening. Oh, I forgot to say this. On our next episode, we'll be covering episode two of uh, SG1. What's that one called? The Enemy Within. Yeah. And then we're going to jump to episode seven. So awesome. Stick around for episode two. All right. Thanks for listening.